Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The Canadian financial sector has seen its share of ups and downs this year. Equity research analyst Nicholas Belmare puts things into perspective and provides his insights on financials, Canadian banks, interest rates, and inflation. He also gives an overview on the road ahead in 2023 for Canadian financials. Nick discusses the possibility of another interest rate hike from the Bank of Canada and what we could expect from the release of earnings from major Canadian banks. Thinking through to next year, Nick says there could be a few challenges for banks, including funding, credit, and capital. For example, he says we need to look at the deep inverted yield curves and leading indicators rolling over into sectors like housing, retail, and trucking. In addition, Nick also talks about opportunities he's seeing in Canadian financial markets, other financial subsectors, mergers, and acquisitions. This podcast was recorded on November 25th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So Nick, uh, next week and, and the week after, there's a lot going on. We have the Bank of Canada has an interest rate announcement on December 7th, as I mentioned. Bank earnings are, are coming out next week. We'll get to all of that. Maybe we'll start with kind of the macro environment. Um, where do you think the Bank of Canada could take interest rates in that next announcement? And what have you seen from them so far that you're looking at? Yeah, rates have been a dominant team for, I think, for every uh, investor out there, but especially for financials investor, because rates directly impact the P&L of those uh, companies. And it's we've come a long way, right? We started the, the year near uh, zero rates. The, this tightening cycle has been pretty unique from both the magnitude and the speed uh, at which it is unfolding. And so right now, both the Fed, Bank of Canada are sort of in the high trees with the market looking at a terminal rate in the U.S., probably with a five handle on short term rates and probably a little bit lower in Canada with a four handle. So more to go. Obviously, what central banks are trying to tackle is inflation. There has been some good progress in terms of the good side of the inflation equation. But let's remember services is about three quarters of CPI and it's it's very tied to the employment situation. So the question from here is how fast and how low will service inflation drop? And it's possible that without a higher unemployment, there is some stickiness there. That means we will have to live with higher rates for longer and also the resulting inversion of the yield curves. I mean, you know, it's impossible to predict uh, where the rate hikes will stop, but there was sort of an expectation at some point that uh, it might slow down at about 4%. We're pretty close to that. Do you think that, you know, from what you've seen from the Bank of Canada, what they're saying, and, and even, even the Federal Reserve in the U.S., do you think it could go higher than that 4%? Do you expect a big increase, or, or will it start moderating from here? 
I, I think that's that's reasonable. Again, we're, what we're closely watching is just you know that that service piece and can it really drop meaningfully without a change in employment? And we know that monetary policy acts with a lag, so we'll also have to think increasingly into next year about what are the consequences of those higher rates and how they filter through in the economy. So bank earnings coming out next week. What are you anticipating from you know the major Canadian banks? Yeah, let's think about the picture for Canadian banks right now. As you mentioned, they've done fairly well, and that's because the earning estimates have been resilient for banks, right? And they have seen a little bit of normalization of credit and pressure on some fee businesses, but that's been overwhelmed by very strong performance of their net interest income, right? And that's both on the NIM side, so the net interest margin, the difference between the rate at which they lend and at which they pay their depositors, that's been expanding with higher rates. And until very recently, you've also seen the very strong loan growth, right? I say very recently because you've definitely seen a downtick in, in mortgage lending and we can get back to the housing situation soon. But that's been the picture, resilient earnings estimates. I think as we, obviously the stocks are off from their peak and that's been mostly on the multiple as investors start to think about the potential for a recession next year. And I think thinking through next year, there are a couple of challenges for the space, right? So number one would be on the funding situation. So as much as in the early part of an interest rate hike cycle, every bank benefits <clears throat> from this increasing NIM, at some point there's a bit of a catch up on the liability side. And that really varies from bank to bank, but you're seeing sort of the funding costs go up and banks are less poised to benefit at some point in the hiking cycle. And you're also going to see probably a slowing loan growth. And the other thing we'll have to think more about next year is obviously the credit picture, right? We talked about how monetary policy acts with a lag. And so I think we'll see the full impact of that into next year. So that's probably going to be another headwind they're going to deal with. I think investors will be keenly focused on that, you know, that funding and that differentiation between banks. They'll be focused on expenses as well and the outlook that banks may provide on that for next year, because I think the... The expenses is obviously like every business under some pressure from inflation, but that is probably the one lever that is most within the control of the banks. And lastly, we're watching how the capital situation evolves. The banks are well capitalized, but they have used a lot of their surplus capital that they were sitting on 12 to 18 months ago, either to fund acquisition or fund their organic growth. So that sort of surplus capital story has also faded. Can we talk a little bit more about some of those challenges that you were talking about, the credit issue? Explain, you know, what what are you looking for there? What are the concerns on that uh, on that topic? Yeah, usually when you see a recession, you see a credit cycle. Now it can people we've seen some extremes in the past fifteen years, right? So people tend to anchor either one extreme or bad was the financial crisis. I mean, that was. Uh, that was a, a crisis where the banking sector was at the center of it. So that was maybe one extreme on the bad side, especially in the US or Europe. On the other side, you know, COVID was a bit unique because of, there was such a strong monetary and fiscal response it was almost a recession without a credit cycle. So perhaps there's something that can sit in between, but some of the recession indicators we're looking at, obviously, deeply inverted yield curves and leading indicators rolling over some of the early cycle sectors like housing, retail, or trucking are seeing some weakness, right? So uh, some of the red flags appear. That is sort of a normal part of an economic cycle. It's a healthy part of an economic cycle. And you see increasing um, 
sort of losses tied to that. The thing we don't know yet is just the depth and exact timing and, and nature of the recession, right? Where, where the bodies are buried. So that all we can do for now is really prepare, right? Map each company, each maybe bank to their exposure. So once that becomes more clear, we can act. Also, I think that's across all of Fidelity, all sectors, the analysts, for more than six months now, we've been thinking about this potential for recession and mapping, you know, looking at, at historical precedents and thinking what's different this cycle, mapping what it means for revenue, margins, and profits, and just have a, a roadmap so we're ready. And the most important thing is, is coming up with a price, right, as well. If there are headwinds, what price do we feel we're compensated to navigate through that? Because the best buying opportunities, they do happen in the fog of war when there's a lot of uncertainty. So you can't be paralyzed by fear. What you have to do is be ready. What price do we are we paid to? If we wait three years, you know, we can double our money. And there's a price where bad news start stops to you know impact the stock price meaningfully. So this is all the work that comes into the preparation for a situation like that. Just on housing, I mean, obviously housing, everybody knows that housing is very much tied to our economy and to the banks. We are starting to see all sorts of, you know, housing real estate indicators slowing down. How big is the concern or the impact that a slowing real estate sector could have on our financial industry? Yeah, let's look at where we are now. Obviously, housing is, is a rate sensitive sector, and that's why we started the discussion, the discussion with with rates, right? And so the first impact you're seeing a higher rates is a slowing of demand for housing. And that's just because the buyers, they, can, they cannot afford the same amount as they did with zero interest rates, right? So if you look today, the median uh, mortgage payment on a, on a house that you would buy at today's price, relative to median income has hit pretty much 60% in Canada. That's the highest ever. It surpassed the prior peak in, uh, I think it was April of 1990. So, it's just an affordability issue, pressures demand. Now, buyer or sellers also kind of pull out of the market initially because they don't want to sell in a perceived weak market. So you're not seeing a huge surge of inventory and really you've, you're seeing depressed transaction level. So that's where we sit today. What's the next thing to happen? Is it buyers coming back from the sidelines? It's possible. We have a lot of sort of immigration that drives demand tailwinds over time, but bearing a a cut in rates, like the affordability issue is not going away. So what about the supply side? Obviously, I think no one wants to sell in a weak market, but we're looking at certain pockets. Maybe you could see more sort of forced seller situation. And some of those would be, you know, recent buyers or those who have refinanced, maybe a little offside on payments or investors who maybe carry too many properties. The cost of carrying those has increased significantly. Could some of them look to deleverage? And lastly, the the bucket of kind of the mortgage market we're paying more attention to is probably outside the banks. It's more in that private lending where a lot of it is it's a less uh, sticky uh, financing, right? A lot of it is from retail investors investing in sort of those mix. If they decide to redeem, some of those lenders may turn to the borrowers and you know request the payment, in which case it's often the only way to solve that is by putting the property on the market. So those could be sources of more supply that we're watching. As, it, as we bring that, and, and that could drive more weakness in the market. As we, if I just try to tie that back to the banks, you know, I think the quality of the mortgage portfolio of the banks has been obviously pretty good because of all the regulations around it. Like just starting with the fact that you need at least 20% uh, 
you know, equity on an uninsured mortgage. So that uh, certainly offers a buffer. And then Canadian homeowners tend to, that's kind of the last thing they will, they will stop paying the mortgage. They'll cut a lot of stuff before that. And so the mortgage itself may not be the, the biggest issue, but as you have household maybe cutting in other parts of their budget, it can hurt the economy. And then obviously banks are kind of a levered play on the economy. So they may still have an, a more indirect impact. Mortgages, housing, recessions, I can't help but think about 2008. And in 2008, Canadian banks were the gold standard of, you know, the financial sector. Everybody was raving about how well the Canadian banks did. Now, there was a recession in 2020, but let's leave that aside. It was quick and, and things rebounded, but at least in markets. But, you know, when you compare 2008 to what's happening now, how do the Canadian banks stand up against their global peers? Yeah, first of all, you know, a couple of reasons why it may not be a, as bad as um, 2008 from a from a banking kind of perspective globally. Right. I think um, one reason is definitely that the system has been shored up it's, uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis from a transparency, liquidity, capital standpoint. If you think in Canada, for instance, we have this counter-cyclical buffer. So that's basically the regulator telling banks, keep this rainy day fund uh, aside. And if things are, are bad, basically, you can, you can use that capital. So those are the kind of things that, that didn't exist before. And now, so I think the overall global you know, financial system is in much better shape. When we think about Canada relative to other areas, obviously, Canadian banks have always you know, has been seen as some of the highest quality banks in the world. So they have a high ROE. We know it's an oligopoly with a favorable regulatory treatment of mortgages and diversified revenue streams and strong fee businesses. All that helps. But, you know, they've also we've also seen a higher than average kind of private uh, sector debt growth in Canada, as well as, you know, and part of it was the, the, the this very kind of elevated housing market. So in a, in a rate-induced recession, that may put a little more pressure on Canadian banks relative to other systems. And so, you know, the benefit we have is we really have a global research, right? So every two weeks, I sit with all my financials colleagues from around the world, Asia, Europe, North America, and we kind of compare notes. And we are seeing potentially, you know, in, in our global mandates, there, there is possibility to invest in other areas where they may not be as high quality banks, but perhaps they can go from kind of bad to a little better businesses and priced as such. Those may be better stocks, right? So in some parts of some countries in Europe, you have to be selective. But if they have the fiscal kind of firepower to support their citizens through the, uh, the energy crisis. You have some European markets where you can see a path for these banks to go from obviously very low ROE, maybe mid single digit to low teens. And the starting point on valuation may be a lot lower. So those can be you know, examples where we may see more compelling opportunities globally uh, when we just kind of compare our opportunity sets. Is what we're seeing now with the Canadian banks similar to what we saw in 80 to 82? In terms of like uh, the housing downturn and so on. I mean, again, I think some of those, some of those same. And sorry, and in terms of high inflation as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, inflation, it's, it's not necessarily the, the worst for, for banks, because again, even if, 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 you, if you have like a, a higher level, like structurally higher level of, of interest rates, like that does provide a higher level of profitability for the system. And that may come with higher losses. But remember, the first 
the first line of defense for banks against credit losses is their own profitability, right? And so that's one thing Canadian banks have is a very high ratio of their profits before credit losses to credit losses, meaning they can they can withstand a multifold increase in kind of their loss ratios before they would even record a, a loss. So that's a huge protection. And if you have a more this kind of inflationary backdrop persists, perhaps a drag on the economy. But there's some parts of the, the banks, such as their net interest income, that could remain you know, more resilient and provide some buffer. So it's not necessarily all bad, but you just have to be cautious like in terms of what that means for the valuations and, and, and think about where we may be in that credit cycle. It sounds like from what you're saying, the maybe some global banks, as we're in 2008, Canada was kind of, you know, the cream of the crop here. Some other banks might be better opportunities, but Canada still is, is you know, in relatively, we're not going to fall apart here. But so there's a question here, are the banks ready for a recession risk? So if we kind of directly ask that, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think from uh, being able to navigate through it, like, as I said, uh, I think the same points apply, the starting point of their profitability and the ability to absorb higher losses. And then again, on that that point of the just generally the banking systems across the world, including Canada, having more buffers. And lastly, let's let's remember here, like what may induce this this downturn is, you know, higher rates in response to inflation. And so if we do enter a period where there's higher unemployment and slower economic activity, like that does leave room for central banks to eventually reverse course. Now, some people want to have their maybe their cake and eat it too, like see the benefit of lower rates without what needs to come first. But, you know, by increasing rates, central banks have given themselves room here for in bad times, you know, be able to stimulate again. So that's just something to keep. That's not really relevant as of today, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind. And you know, and you want to do take a couple steps ahead and not be too gloomy, right? But it all comes down for us as investors is do the work, stress test, and have your prices in mind and be ready to act. And so that's really and and in the meantime, there may be other places in financials that can be interesting. We can talk about that as well. And and so I, I have another just question on the Canadian banks. And yeah, let's let's talk about some of the other things you cover. But all, the banks are, are all have sort of different properties to them. And I'm just wondering, sort of from an opportunity perspective, where do you see opportunities in kind of the Canadian financial markets? Some some of the banks have more global expansion. Maybe just talk about some of the differences and, and what you're kind of liking these days. Yeah, absolutely. Like this has been a great year to actually be a bank analyst because there has been a lot of divergence in even within Canadian banks. There's been a lot of divergence between the performance of the stocks. And then we talk about Canada versus the rest of the world. And we may talk about even other subsectors of financials. But, you know, if we think within Canadian banks, you know, some of the things that have driven a uh, uh, some divergence, right? We talked about this funding equation, right? So perhaps in the US, for instance, it's a, it's a market that has more is more deposit rich. And so there's less reliance on what we call wholesale funding. And wholesale funding has gotten a lot more expensive now for banks. And so if you have this better coverage of your loans with deposits, some of those banks have had a more resilient kind of net interest income trajectory, and that may uh, continue for some time. And even within deposits, the nature of those is different from bank to bank, right? If you have a very transactional kind of deposit base, sort of you and I, like our, our main bank account were you know, we, we just keep kind of the 
some just kind of the basics there. We're okay not, you know, this is, doesn't pay any, the bank doesn't pay any interest on that, right? So that's the highest quality of deposits you can get. When you think about, you know, savings and excess savings in a higher rate environment, that's where depositors may kind of seek uh, can I go in a in a high yield kind of a, or a fixed income fund or term it out in the GIC? And that's where you're seeing that repricing. So there are differences from bank to bank. I think the other one is capital allocation, right? So during the, the pandemic, some banks have been more proactive managing their risk-weighted assets, have created a lot of room in their capital, and then turn around and made some significant acquisitions, right? And those a lot of those have not closed yet, but as they come in into next year in 2024, these earnings streams that they will bring on, as well as kind of the synergies that can be extracted if they already have a footprint, for instance, in the US, those will add up and create a different earnings profile. So those are just some examples of things we look at in terms of even analyzing the different earnings you know, trajectories between the banks. Great. And do you see an improvement in bank PEs coming at all? Or what might that look like to see that improvement? Yeah, I mean, the P as the price and also the, the earnings. So I talked about maybe some of the challenges for, for the earnings. And banks, again, you should think of them as kind of a levered plays on the economy. So if we do see signs of economic reacceleration, that would, that would boost the multiples. On the flip side, if we see a more deteriorating outlook, you would probably see more pressure on valuation. Now, you do cover other things than just Canadian banks. And uh, so within sort of the Canadian market, what other financial sectors, subsectors do you cover? And, and are there opportunities there for investors and advisors to look at? Yeah, I would say I, would, I look even beyond just the, 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 the confines of Canada. And we have, we, have, we have global research across all subsectors of financials. So financials, you know, we rightly think of banks and life codes because they're the giants, but there's a lot more going on, right? So just to give you some examples, for instance, uh, exchanges, right? Exchanges, you know, they sit between, you know, buyers and sellers of risk, especially if you think about options or futures. And so in a volatile backdrop, the demand to add or offload risk kind of just uh, goes up and uh, you're seeing these companies actually benefit from a tougher backdrop with taking very little credit risk. And a lot of them have sort of transformed into being more like software or uh, recurring service uh, revenue. And so there are some interesting idiosyncratic stories there. Think about brokers, online brokers. You know, you and I probably like if we do a trade, we'll sell a stock and we'll have some cash in the account while we debate what to buy next. And so those brokers, they can take those cumulative cash balances of their clients, reinvest in short-term treasuries, which now yield a lot more than they did in the past. And, and sort of benefit out of that on top of the, uh, the the commission income. So that's just kind of a business model that, again, in, in, in an environment where you have higher rates, but maybe higher credit risk emerging is, is perhaps differentiated. And, you know, insurance has multiple segments, you know, auto or home insurance, those are um, not very like discretionary purchases, right? We're often required by the lender or by a law to, to hold those. And so, you know, that's just another area where as long as there's good pricing dynamics in the industry, you can you can benefit and write out a, a credit cycle. And just on, on the global bank side, which you kind of talked about a bit before, are what what countries or what areas do you find attractive today outside of Canada? As I said, I, I don't want to get too specific, but some, you know, if you look, even some uh, countries in Europe, like if they have the fiscal 
firepower to support kind of their citizens and limit the, the, the credit impact. And you're going from negative rates there to somewhere like earlier, probably earlier days in the, in the interest rate cycle. Some of those banking markets are consolidating as well. And so you're seeing maybe more favorable competitive dynamics emerge. And they've just have been less, they've seen less asset growth and loan growth, which, you know, you can say that's a negative, but if you're going into a tougher period, maybe you, that is also can be seen as a positive, right? And so again, some, some banks have kind of a pathway to maybe almost double their return on equity. And so if you start with a low enough price to book, like those can be just interesting rate of chance stories. I don't think any of those will get to be the same kind of absolute quality of Canadian banks. But again, sometimes it's just difference between good business and good stock. We always kind of think about that and, and look globally, where are the best stocks we can position in? There's a, another question about the uh, about whether the current environment is a good time for mergers and acquisitions, uh, you know, not maybe not just sort of in the banking sector, but all the things you cover. Are you seeing any activity there? Or where, where could that go? It's in theory should be a good time for buyers. So we, I, you know, I like some of these companies that have very strong balance sheets because that may be a good time for them to deploy. The issue is, again, it's like the housing market where the sellers, you know, it takes some time to, to adjust, right? And so you're actually seeing a big dip in M&A activity because it's just a wide bid ask spread. Now, if conditions remain tight for longer, some of the companies even started to tell me, like we're seeing more inquiries, some of these leveraged businesses from private equity, they're kind of coming around, maybe more willing to sell. And so I think it's a good time for, you know, well-capitalized uh, buyers. And that, that we've seen some of that play out. I talked about it in the banks, right? Those that have freed up a lot of capital, some have already uh, made those moves. Those transactions are pending. Some banks still sit on a lot of excess capital. They would also have like an above average flexibility and optionality. So I think that, that may well be um, something that we'll have to watch uh, in 2023 in terms of like, where do, do the bid ask for these transactions kind of close and we're gonna see real big strategic moves being deployed. I'm gonna to move to a little bit of a different financial sector. Crypto has been in the news for, for a while now. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, does a lot of people are, are nervous that some of the issues happening in the crypto space could find themselves affecting kind of the broader financial industry. Is that a concern of yours? No, it's not just because like the banks don't don't land or hold, you know, any any meaningful crypto exposure, right? So it's very different from the the subprime crisis that was really a banking at the center. And so if the banks are having one issue to deal with, they may be like they may curtail lending to other parts of the economy, and that's how you really get this contagion that we call right. So the crypto has been contained very much into you know some of those those platforms that are involved in lending. You know that that don't have the proper risk controls, and you're seeing that deleveraging. I, what I find interesting is when you dig one layer down, the crypto networks themselves are holding up. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're holding up well. So the the so that's interesting in terms of thinking about the longer term promise there in terms of potential applications in uh, I think global trade, settlement, cross border payments. I, I think I'm going to continue to uh, pay a lot of attention to developments in blockchain and how they may or may not you know, be disruptive to centralized entities, because I think that's, that will continue. But certainly right now, there's sort of a cleanup and 
deleveraging kind of event happening, but that's not very relevant for the traditional financial system. I'm, I'm just wondering how investors and, and advisors might be able to uh, take advantage of opportunities in the financial space today. I think by nature of being invested in Canada, you're going to own some financials. You're already, pro- a lot of people are probably just owning them in, you know, in fidelity funds, whatever they are, Canadian funds. Is now the time to tweak the allocation, diversify more? How would you, what would you be your advice for investors and advisors to uh, approach the financial sector today? I can't really provide for for others. I'd say internally, like it's it's a really exciting time because there's a lot of change. There's a lot of macro, and so our process of like understanding our companies work and react in different environments and especially price levels where, yeah, at some point you take some of those more defensive and resilient companies and you can invest when when people panic in some other areas like we're, we're just really on top of it and doing the homework and it's it's kind of a play by play. Right. So can provide really a, a blanket advice, but hopefully you got a good sense of what we're doing, some of the areas we're looking at where we're more excited, where we're more kind of in wait and see, and we're just deploying this process across the funds. I will leave it there. We're at time. It's always fun talking about financials. It's such a big part of our economy and everyone, you know, has interactions with banks here. So I think it's a, it's a great sector that everyone can relate to. So hopefully we will chat again soon, but thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.